Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about murdering friendship. joining. Hearts connect, they say, and love blooms. But deeper yet is that connection sans romance, beyond romance, where a single soul recognizes another, and an understanding, a tenuous joining, makes itself without permission. Love as deep as a soul starts popping up like daisies, unbidden yet unstoppable, because yes, I get you, and you get me joined by God, by design, or chaos, friendship wild as the sea beckons us to dive in. By my recollection, this is probably the third time I've shared all or part of the poem The Joining by different drummer Nicole Villacrez on various inappropriate conversations or Walk the Earth shows, and it may not be the last time. The poem means a lot to me, and I've always interpreted it from the perspective of friendship broadly, which could be friendship between sexes or friendship within the same gender. And today I want to speak more, or at least I'm going to try to speak more, about the question of friendship within the same gender, and specifically friendship between males, friendship between boys, inspired today by a different drummer and an article that was published a little more than a year ago called Why Do We Murder the Beautiful Friendships? Of boys. I'll get to Mark Green in a moment. It's just enough to say that this isn't the first time, although it's a little bit of a rarity, for me to name a different drummer that I don't really have much connection with. That what inspires me about the person isn't so much the person, the writer in this case, but the writings. It's the topic. On the uh, the idea of gun control a little while back, uh, the Seeing Spot Run episode, named a different drummer I didn't really know, uh, had not even read that person's work prior to doing research for the topic, but was inspired enough by the perspective and kind of lacking a, another different drummer to pick from that I thought might be better that I went there. In this case, though, this episode is constructed almost entirely around the challenging thoughts and writings of Mark Green. I say almost entirely because, of course, I started off the show with a poem by Nicole Villacrez that speaks to this topic of platonic friendship. And also, if you were to take a look at the website at inappropriateconversations.org, you'd see that at the time I'm making this recording, the top entry is the April 3rd blog post called Forbidden or Sacred Friendships. And it's a lengthy book review of a book by Joshua D. Jones called Forbidden Friendships. And I would encourage anyone to go and take a look not just at the review, but also at the book. Uh, I'd read the review first, though, because the review provides some disclaimers, it makes a targeted recommendation, is how I would word that. So, with that book in mind, having been the most recent book that I've read, dealing with friendship between genders, I want to focus today's show as much as I can on the concept of friendship within gender, and help to address the question that Mark Green raises about, you know, why, why do we murder the beautiful friendship of boys, is his question. I'll just let his question stand there for a moment. And before I get into some of the answers that he proposes, kind of challenge you as a listener to answer that question. Maybe I should start, though, with the question that begs the question. 
I'm quite sure that there are instances, maybe numerous instances, of male friendships that stretch all the way back to elementary school or even kindergarten or even preschool. I would just suggest that it's kind of rare. And let me dissect my own life just a little bit to talk about it. Because some of these things are not sort of engineered. They're not planned. They just kind of happen. If you move at the end of elementary school to a new school district and start a new junior high school there, or make a similar move from junior high school to high school, and if that move is of enough distance uh, across town, if the town is significantly large, or to another state, then that is, of course, going to sever things. And I think people who are young this day and age have more advantage than they know. If they were to stop and think about, you know, they stay connected probably reasonably well, at least on a superficial level, with friends that they've made along the way, if both of them choose to, through the power of the Internet. But this is a pre-Internet age I'm talking about, 1970s, 1980s. And it was a much bigger challenge to stay connected to people if you had a great friendship and then moved away from it by, you know, to the tune of several hours drive or something along those lines. And friendships get severed for that reason. But there are other reasons why friendships get severed. And in my case, I can't chalk it all up to geography, but, you know, I just don't have the same kinds of quality male-male friendships going back years that my wife does. When my wife and I went to Pride 48 in Las Vegas in August of last year, I knew I was going to see people that I interact with via the podcast medium and to actually be part of a podcasting um, symposium of sorts uh, in Las Vegas. And so there were people on my list that I knew I was going to see. I was traveling to see and meet them there. My wife's connections weren't quite so strong. They were far more casual than that. And at best, these were people that she only knew through my, hus- through, through my husband is how she would have worded it. So she was able to pick up the phone, have a conversation with friends in our hometown, and somebody flew out to Las Vegas to meet her there, and she spent you know day, a day just with me, and then a couple of days with her friend, and then another day with me that we kind of connected with a lot of our friends who were traveling also to be part of the Pride 48 event. But it was interesting that she had the ability to pick up the phone and talk to a friend from middle school and high school where I didn't. I would not have been in a position, at least I wouldn't have been as confident, as casually confident as she was, to just pick up the phone and say, hey, we haven't seen each other in a long time, why don't you fly out to Las Vegas, and my husband's going to be doing this thing, and we can watch him you know, do his podcast live, and then we can go to some shows and hang out while he's watching other podcasts. And that sort of thing is just beyond the realm of, I just can't conceive of it. And I know it's because somewhere between elementary school, junior high school, and now, those friendships have been severed. Now, I don't mean to be playing the violin here and asking everyone to hum along to a sad, sad song. No, a couple of years ago, a friend of ours from college, my friend, a male friend, who had a great connection with my fiance at the time, and you know, of course now she's my wife, did come out to see us, and we spent some time together. And it wasn't uh, necessarily awkward, but it's still, these moments call to remind me that that was a gap of a gap you'd measure in decades, not years, that I just somehow cannot stay connected. And it's a challenge staying connected with female friends. I'm going to talk about this in this show. I can't help it to bring it up. And I'll I've tentatively plan an inappropriate conversations to hit this friendship idea again later this year. And I'm sure that will focus on female friends as well. 
But staying closely and intimately connected with female friends, I think most of us understand what the challenge is there, that you're going to be in a place where she's going to get married, go off and start a family. Uh, your wife may be actually somewhat relieved that this uh, very close relationship has some you know, additional boundaries that, that are being wrapped around it just in the way people live their lives. But it only takes one, even the most slight and subtle inconsideration, to break that bond because society is sort of lined up and stacked up in open hostility, at least it seems to me at times, in open hostility to the notion of men and women having this kind of seriously intimate friendship, platonic but intimate friendship. But we have the same problem with men, and I think we know exactly what the issue is. I'm going to call it out and say that the issue is homophobia. And the challenge of the issue is the impact that has upon the stigmatization of touch. We have become a country that doesn't do a very good job making contact with each other, speaking specifically to Americans. But I know for a fact that you see some of the same stuff going on in other English-speaking countries like the United Kingdom. And a big chunk of it is homophobia, but there are probably some other cultural things going on there as well. I was doing research for this particular show, and I looked back to episodes that I recorded in the year 2013. One of the reasons I did so, I think, is probably obvious. Uh, a May episode, number 120, released that year, was called Making Contact. And Leo Biscaglia was the different drummer. And if there's ever been an advocate, uh, from a psychology perspective, on the positive impact of platonic human touch, it's Biscaglia. But I, I actually thought of it because I was remembering the name of that show, and Making Contact is almost what it feels like, in some ways, for a man to... Uh, hold hands with, in a platonic way, a friend of his, a friendship that goes on for decades, in a moment of great need. Say, one of the two men's wives is having a surgery and it's touch and go and there's serious doubt. That decision to hold hands at that moment, to provide that kind of direct physical comfort during that moment, can seem just as risky and just as uh, uncertain to succeed as a moon launch. It's just as odd in some cases in the psychology of many men, maybe most men, as launching a ship into space, putting on a spacesuit, ejecting yourself temporarily from your capsule, and reaching out to make physical contact with an alien race from another planet. And the fact that our society has devolved to this level is interesting on a couple of levels. First, we don't even know we've devolved, <laughs> which is a problem. Uh, many people would, I think, doubt or question that we haven't always just been this way. I had a co-worker who died this year, and he has a quote, and I, if I've shared it before on Walk the Earth, I'll share it again here, uh, with apologies for the repetition, but it's worth sharing. Uh, we were standing around at the calling hours, uh, and I was, first off, impressed and struck by what a unique combination of people that we'd worked with over the course of more than 10, 12 years had come to remember him. People who no longer worked where we worked, people who were in different cities coming together. He was a quiet guy. I would never describe him as charismatic. And yet that charisma must have been in place, even in its own subtle way, to draw that kind of group together on uh, in unexpected circumstances and therefore inevitably on short notice. He had many quotable quotes, in fact, but the one I want to share is this. If your answer to the question is that it's the way we've always done it, you don't understand the question. The question can't be answered with, well, we've always done it that way around here. That's a cop-out. That's not thinking critically. That's not getting to the heart of the matter. And for me, 
when we assume that the way things are now is the way we've always done it, we better be right about it. And I'm going to share some evidence later in the show that clearly shows, hey, we're not right about this, that men, say, 150 years ago, did not hesitate to have this hand-holding encounter I just described. It's possible that even 50 years ago, it might not have carried the same, uh, well, stigma, the same doubt. It might not have seemed quite, quite so much like a moon launch as it does today. I mentioned that I was looking at 2013 and inappropriate conversations in general, perhaps uh, thinking about episodes 114 all the way to yeah, perhaps 123 or so, this chunk of the spring and, and early summer of that year, with episodes like uh, Fathers and Sons uh, hinging on this notion of the power of, of father talking to me. Papa talked to me was kind of my, my own mental subtitle for that episode. Or uh, Where Would I Be Without God? I'm going to refer to episode 118 here in just a moment when I kind of talk about my response to the different drummer. And uh, then a couple episodes after that, I, I went back to back to back with uh, Making Contact, 120. The Power of a Moment, number 121. Disappear Here, number 122. And this is worth fighting for, number 123. All of those dealing, in some ways, with either our hesitation to reach out and touch people, even in their moment of greatest need, or the significance of what happens when we do, uh, that it can actually be life-saving to speak the right words or make the right gesture, again referring to touch, into the lives of other people. I mentioned that we have a problem with this and that I believe that the issue is homophobia, and I do so because, in part, we are so quick to deny the significance and importance of touch just on general principles that when I mentioned my thoughts about this article and some other issues, I get the strangest pushback from time to time. Just tell a quick story because I think it's entertaining. It may not be totally on topic, but if nothing else, it'll provide another dimension to the way we want to think about this. I was talking about the, the power of touch and how touch can be taboo, and I mentioned the case of the Idaho Republican Senator Larry Craig a few years ago who was arrested for trying to make inappropriate contact and a sexual advance toward an undercover police officer in the bathroom of the Minneapolis airport. And I, I said this, it struck to me, not just that the guy was probably guilty of soliciting sex in a public place. Uh, I didn't really care about whether this was a male-on-male sexual encounter or male-on-female sexual encounter. The, the fact is that he was looking for love in all the wrong places. And I would consider the men's bathroom of, a, of an international airport to definitely be one of those wrong places. But the people in my family who are more politically conservative than I am, you know, referring specifically to my sister and her family, are still you know, so obsessed with... I don't know whether they were coming at it from the angle that there is no such thing as gay, or whether they were just so much in denial that a uh, conservative Republican couldn't be gay, a married man couldn't be gay. Whatever it was, there was just an overwhelming obsession from them, and a Fox News-based obsession, I would suggest, with saying that, that, that Larry Craig was innocent, that he must have been set up, that you can't put any weight in the guilty plea <laughs> that he put in, um, playing to a lesser charge so that he wouldn't have to face the full consequences of his actions, that it was a frame job, that it was an innocent encounter, that this kind of thing could happen to anybody. And it makes some sense to talk through about what exactly he did before I give you my answer back to my younger sister. And a moment of interesting and uh, uncomfortable solidarity between me and my brother-in-law, because I asked a question and he simply had to agree with me. Not because he wanted to, but I think because he knew I was right. But first, what exactly did Craig do? 
Well, he entered, uh, well, first of all, think of an airplane bathroom for a moment, and not just a small airport. This is Minneapolis. It's the kind of airport that if you lived in my part of the country, you might land in to refuel and set yourself for a jump to someplace much further away, Anchorage, Hawaii, somewhere like that. So a large airport. And a bathroom not far from the food court, or so I'm told, in this large airport is going to have a fairly large number of urinals, a fairly big bank of restroom stalls, and a fairly big bank of sinks uh, with perhaps enough counter space for somebody to shave if they needed to. If you've seen the uh, Steven Spielberg film The Terminal starring Tom Hanks, you know that you know every now and then men have to do more than just wash their hands in the bathroom. You have to, If you're on one of those 18-hour type flights, you might be brushing your teeth and shaving in one of those bathrooms as well. So think of a bathroom that's that size. And the reason that I suggest that I'm, I'm confident that this bathroom was this big was that I've seen pictures in a weird sort of pop culture thing. I don't know what to call it. I don't have a word for this, but it's become known as the Larry Craig bathroom. And people who work in the Minnesota airport in Minneapolis will tell you that it's not at all unusual, especially the closer you get to the food court area, for people to actually come. Ask people who work there if they can point them to the, quote, Larry Craig bathroom. And you can find, if you search, images online, allegedly, of the stall, the two stalls, where this crime was committed and where all of this, uh, you know, politically career-ending drama started with Larry Craig. Of course, it ended later with other people, five, six, seven, eight of them, coming out of the woodwork saying that they had either been solicited for male-on-male sexual encounters by the senator or uh, had been um, uh, made uncomfortable by him uh, persistently following them and, you know, eyeing them out, checking them out. So this is not the only instance. The notion that this was a misinterpretation of a one-off event is, well, patently false. But there's pictures of this bathroom which show five uh, stalls in a row. This is the seating section of a men's bathroom. But it couldn't be the whole section because there's five stalls in a row all of identical size and shape, meaning that these aren't the only stalls in this particular bathroom. I'm inferring here, but my understanding of the Americans with Disabilities Act tells me that there had to have been another bank of stalls for people who want to sit and use the restroom inside that same bathroom area because there wasn't a handicapped size stall that's in in the pictures that I saw. I saw a group of five together. And so what I told my younger sister was that it is beyond the realm of possibility for me to believe that somebody who is not a suspicious character would behave as Craig behaved. As described, and some of the facts which actually are not in dispute, the undercover police officer was in the last stall, stall five, if you will, if you number them from left to right, and Larry Craig went to stall five, tried to look in, peek through the door, aware, he was very aware that someone was in that stall, and at that point chose stall number four the stall immediately to the left of the stall that the undercover police officer, of course he didn't know his police officer, was sitting in. And during the course of using the restroom, Craig uh, inched his uh, left foot further and further over to make contact with the right foot of the officer in the other stall and also put his hand underneath the stall to where his fingers were visible to the person who was sitting in that stall. I've got to tell you, for me, growing up as a boy in the United States of America, I believe that if I were to engage in that kind of conduct in a bathroom, I would be seriously risking great physical harm. That annoying, at at the very least, annoying somebody trying to do their business in the stall next to me, when there were at least three other stalls further away from that person available to me, 
would have probably created a justifiable act of at least anger. Probably not violence. Not that the violence wouldn't have come. Whether the violence is justified is a different question for a different day. But it would be viewed as confrontational behavior. And the policeman arrested him. He considered the senator's actions to be the exact kind of actions that he was actually there to try to prevent and police. He was stopping people from engaging in sexual solicitation and sexual practices in that part of that bathroom in that airport. And I refuse to believe that Larry Craig's behavior coincidentally looked like something that it simply wasn't. But this was the point of view of the female members of my family. Now here's the problem. The female members of my family do not have all the information that they need to have. I looked at my brother-in-law and said, say there's five stalls. Turns out I was right. <laughs> say there's five stalls there. And of, of the five, he knew that the fifth one was occupied. And he chose number four. Is he really a citizen above suspicion? Is he really an innocent guy caught up in events beyond his control? I, mean, I can understand maybe if this guy had to drop a, a load of defecation that was so large and so urgent that it was either the first stall I can find or, or the floor in front of me, maybe. But that is not, by all accounts, including Senator Craig's account, what happened. He's apparently spent time in the bathroom making sure that somebody was in that fifth stall and that there weren't maybe a lot of other people around and the other stalls were completely available to him. And he chose number four. My brother-in-law simply had to acknowledge that whether it's written down somewhere, there's a code. And it's really obvious. And at the very least, Senator violated that code. The Larry Craig bathroom is notorious for a reason. More United States politicians and lawmakers have been arrested for sexual misconduct in public bathrooms than all trans people of any gender you can name combined in the history of our country. That's a factually true statement, by the way. And it calls into question some of the things that are being done in legislatures in places like Mississippi and North Carolina and Georgia and South Carolina now. It, it raises questions, because if you really want to protect the public from nefarious sexual misconduct in public bathrooms, you probably should make it illegal for lawmakers to use the bathrooms. If we're worried about trans people, trans people on an order of magnitude of 400% difference or more are less harmful to society than, well, Senator Larry Craig, for example. I wrap it around a whole bunch of allegedly's and try to give the man the benefit of the doubt, but there's a couple of problems. He pled guilty, his guilty plea stands... And then there's the little issue of the bathroom rules. So let me walk through this. Why, why would my brother-in-law, who's very politically differently minded than I am, his mentality is different, his, his point of view is different, uh, I'll be very surprised if he doesn't have to wrestle before the end of this year with whether he has to vote for Donald Trump or not vote at all, because he couldn't see another way, certainly not a third party, absolutely not a Democrat, He's got that kind of mindset. I make the joke from time to time, and it is just a joke. But when people ask me about some of my family members, my extended family, my in-laws, I tell them that their biggest problem with Fox News is that channel is just too damn liberal. For him to agree with me that I was sizing up the misbehavior of Senator Craig here in a completely accurate and even-keeled way, it was true. Because of the bathroom rules. Let's say you have a stall. A set of five stalls. And it could just as easily be urinals or something else. But just say there's five bathroom options when you walk into a public restroom. There's just an unwritten rule that says if somebody is standing at stall number five, the right answer, the right place to stand is number one. Number two is not completely unacceptable. Number three is okay. But four is unacceptable. 
If somebody is at stall five and someone else is at stall three, your only choice is number one. Anything else you do, you may have no choice, but anything else you do is brushing up against the social convention for American men. If you go in and somebody is standing at number four, well, one is an option, two is an option, but three and five are unacceptable. And this is just the nature of the way you navigate being a boy in a public school where the restroom floor plans tend to be pretty open. It's just viewed as suspect behavior to intentionally line yourself up next to somebody you don't know and put the doubt of whether your peripheral vision is wandering in ways that it probably frankly shouldn't. If I knew I was sitting in a stall next to somebody, say I got into stall number four first, weird choice, you'd usually pick one or five, but if I got into stall number four first and somebody lined up in stall number five next with me, there would be no possibility that I would be accidentally playing footsies with this guy. No possibility. I might finish my business in a very expedited manner, but if I didn't, my feet would be you know, very much uh, in the confines of the size of the porcelain that I'm sitting upon. They wouldn't be wandering outside the range. Craig referred to himself as somebody with a wide stance. Great, maybe you naturally have a wide stance, but not when someone's in the stall next to you. This still happens to this very day. Granted, I've been thinking about it because I've been preparing myself to record this inappropriate conversation, but it, it happens every day. I will go into a bathroom where there's a bank of four urinals, and I know when I walk in, my first option is number one, my next option is number four. And I'm not going to choose two or three unless I don't have a choice. It's just the way we think about it. And if somebody was at number four, and I walked in with one, two, and three available to me and picked number three, that's going to be viewed as strange behavior. Now, the question is, should it be viewed as strange behavior? Because there really is no doubt that it would be. The question is whether it should be. And to answer that question, I think I'm going to introduce our different drummer, Mark Green. As often happens when I'm doing authors, oddly for people who write for a living, sometimes the biographical information that's available online, things they may have written about themselves or allowed a publisher to write about them, tends to be a little bit scant. I find that odd, but it's true. Also, when it's an author that I don't know really that much about, I'm going to refer here in a moment to a book that I don't own and have not yet read, but it's an interesting thing about me and reading. I often give myself... An excuse I probably shouldn't. Uh, I know I'm never going to be one of those friends who engages in a 50 books in a year book club and, and assume that it's even possible with my work schedule and with podcasting as a hobby that I would be reading 50 books in a year ever. And I know that I probably could be aptly accused of being somebody who is not an avid reader. But I give myself a couple of excuses. And one of them is that I read a tremendous amount of articles and information online. And that I can be accused of uh, maybe the mantra for me should be always be researching. Because I am always researching. I am always reading. But I rarely give myself the luxury of sitting down with a book and persisting with it from one cover to the other. So Mark Green's the author of a book I haven't read. A book called Remaking Manhood. The Good Men Project has a uh, bio on Green, and it calls this book a collection of Mark's most powerful articles on American culture, relationships, family, and parenting. It is a timely and balanced look at the issues at the heart of the modern masculinity movement. Mark's articles on masculinity and manhood have received over 150,000 Facebook shares, 5 million page views. 
He writes and talks men's issues at Salon, Shriver Report, Huffington Post, HLN, the BBC, and the New York Times. Mark and his wife live in New York City, and Mark has at times described himself as a stay-at-home dad. That's an interesting part, and might play a role in some of the things from Mark's writings that I want to share today. But first, it doesn't make sense to talk about him as being the executive editor of the Good Men Project without perhaps at least sharing a little bit about what the Good Men Project is. Last month, I believe it was the month of March, there was some conversation on the podcast Greetings from Nowhere, also a place where Nicole Villacrez, the poet at the beginning of our show, can be heard. And that was, um, you know, some mixed feelings that I could understand women having about something called the Good Men Project. Uh, if you view the, those words as feeling a little bit like the maybe an equivalent to All Lives Matter, or in any way connected to what we refer to as the men's rights movement, well, then it would definitely give you a negative reaction and a bad taste in your mouth. From my perspective, and as far as I can tell, it isn't adjunct to either one of those ideas, and in many ways, it's absolutely opposed. I'm going to let Mark Green speak for himself, and of course he isn't the only voice that's part of the Good Men Project, but I don't believe that he's ever been on the fringes of being kicked out because of his aberrant views either. He's, an, again, an executive-level writer for that organization. The Good Men Project, at least as explained by Wikipedia, was founded in 2009 by Tom Matlack and James Houghton as a way to allow men to tell stories about the defining moments in their lives. The hope was to spark a national conversation around the question of what does it mean to be a good man. According to the organization, the Good Men Project is a diverse, multimedia-based social platform that looks at the changing roles of men in the 21st century. Issues covered include essays on the stereotyping of men, raising boys, how men are perceived as being disposable, men in the prison system, relationships, LGBT and gender issues, age and social problems, and on and on. And I will tell you that from the LGBT perspective, uh, this is, uh, Mark Green and I have something in common. We are both uh, heterosexual men, married to women who have important life-saving work that they do, uh, to perhaps overstate it just a little bit, have played an active role in raising our children. I've been directly involved. He's been more, more directly involved than me as a stay-at-home dad, but have been directly involved in that process and actually have come to believe through our experiences, through some research, that the current state of homophobia in America today is just as damaging and threatening to the lives of straight men as it is to gay men and women. But maybe now's the time to actually let Mark Green speak the words. This entire show was built around the idea of murdering the beautiful friendship of boys and things that happen when parents get, say, a little bit uncomfortable with maybe the uh, intensity or the duration even of a friendship between boys and come to the conclusion that maybe these boys shouldn't be so close to each other or maybe there's something wrong with that friendship or not wanting their sons to be perceived as gay because of the just the state of bullying in our society and the way our society seems to have multiple points of view or multiple perspectives about dealing with bullying. In Inappropriate Conversations number 79, one that I've referred to often since that uh, Walk the Earth 30 was recorded at Pride 48 Live in Las Vegas, it's a farewell address from the Mexican mountains. I don't actually get into the topic of that show right away because I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about bullying and decrying the Christian defense of bullying, but it's real and it's out there. This article, published in the Good Men Project, February 26, 2015, is built around an experience that he had listening to an author as a speaker 
talking about her work, her research, and her book. Niobe Way and the book Deep Secrets was part of a you know, symposium, for want of a better word, where Mark was in the audience with his wife in New York and had an unexpected and intense emotional reaction to the research that she shared. I'll refer, in some ways, directly to that research. Let's start with the words of Way in Green's article. Boys know by late adolescence that their close male friendships and even their emotional acuity put them at risk of being labeled girly, immature, or gay. Thus, rather than focusing on who they are, they become obsessed with what they are not. They are not girls, little boys, nor, in the case of heterosexual boys, are they gay. In response to a cultural context that links intimacy and male friendships with an age, a sex, female, and a sexuality, gay, these boys quote-unquote mature into men who are autonomous, emotionally stoic, and isolated. The ages of 16 to 19, however, are not only a period of disconnection for the boys in my studies, Way says, it is also a period in which the suicide rate for boys in the United States rises dramatically and becomes five times the rate of girls, when in early, early adolescence it is only three times the rate of girls. And it is the developmental period in which many of the school shootings we have read about in the paper have occurred, and violence, more generally among boys, occurs. Those are the words of Way. Now, in the same article, picking up there, the words of Mark Green, our different drummer. In America, men perform masculinity within a narrow set of cultural rules, often called the man box. Charlie Glickman has a detailed explanation for what that is, but one of the central tenets of the man box is the subjugation of women, and by extension, all things feminine. Since we Americans hold emotional connection as a female trait, we reject it in our boys, demanding that they man up and adopt a strict regimen of emotional independence, even isolation, as proof they are real men. Beyond the drumbeat message that real men are stoic and detached, it is the brutal fist of homophobia, ready to crush any boy who might show too much of the wrong kind of emotions. And so, by late adolescence, boys declare over and over, quote, no homo, unquote, killing any intimate statement about their friends. If you want to see the smoking gun, the toxic poison that is leading to the life-killing epidemic of loneliness for men, and by extension, women, look no further. It's right there. The words, no homo. Which is why we must fight tirelessly and relentlessly for gay rights and marriage equality. It is a battle for the hearts and souls of our young sons. The sooner being gay is normalized, the sooner we will all be free of the shrill and violent homophobic policing of boys and men. America's perverse, homophobic, anti-feminine policing has forced a generation of young men to abandon each other's support at the crucial moment they enter manhood. I'm not going to share the crucial anecdote that's the centerpiece for Green's article. It is well worth going and looking up and finding it for yourself. It's enough to say that he recalls the crucial moments of his childhood from which he was disconnected. Those sporadic, momentary visits that he describes in his story, not unlike the visit from my friend a couple of years ago, where just a few moments together, still connecting on some level, but not being able to have enough time to traverse those years, and how he responded when, his fr when he found out that his friend had died. And the only real connection point he had was a spouse that he'd only met once, and a phone number that he couldn't remember. He recalls, sadly, losing connection and not being able to recreate a touch point with that one dear friendship and perhaps seeing the risk in other friendships where 
just like almost every other kid his age, and his age is roughly my age, that um, making sure that above all you're not perceived as gay being the most important thing. And along the way in this article, he asks a really compelling question. What do you do if you are gay? And it's still just as important to not be perceived as gay in American society as an adolescent boy. Picking back up with the article, I recall a single phone call with his mother, this old friend, after his death. Had she called me? If I go into my decades-old contact list today, I have no entry for George. No address in L.A. No disconnected email address. Nothing. How is this possible? How did I sleepwalk through the chance to reconnect with this friendship? I should have cared. I should have given a damn. Why didn't I? Because somewhere, somehow, I was convinced that close friendships with boys are too painful. Don't parents understand? Don't they know that we love each other? That our children's hearts can be broken so profoundly that they will never rise to a love like that again? What boys do, the world has convinced me, was to move on to the next thing. So I did so. We shrug our collective shoulders and suppress the panic of heartbreak and loss. We go numb. We suppress everything. We accept the world as a surface-level exercise because the love boys feel, that passion we feel for the ones we love, is too powerful. It makes grown-ups nervous. And we can't have grown-ups feeling nervous, can we? Does this sound a little dramatic, Green asks? He cites a study by Gomer, Rosengrove, and Wilshelm called The Lack of Social Support and Incidents of Coronary Heart Disease in Middle-Aged Swedish Men from 1993. Here's the quote. In a six-year study of 736 middle-aged men, attachment to a single person, almost always a spouse, did not lower the risk of heart attack and fatal coronary heart disease, whereas having a strong social support network did. Whether that be friendship between men and women or friendship between men and men, friendship can be a matter of life and death. Quoting Green, Our female or male lovers are not put here to replace the warm platonic love of the hilarious, generous, sympathetic men in our lives. They are put here to celebrate them with us as we celebrate our lovers' passionate platonic friends with them. It is a symphony of love wherein our joy and platonic love is co-amplified by our sexual lives. Both. Both. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of the greatest show in the galaxy, Simpsons Indicated's foray into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, hey, Doctor Who. What are you talking about? To the new... I'm the Doctor. I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good... We all make no one. We are the superior beings. To the bad... No, not the mind, bro. From the sublime... Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous. My dreams of conquest. We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. That's the greatest show in the galaxy, part of the simply syndicated 21st century media network. Splendid fellows, all of you, all of you. I want to come along after the different drummer segment and share my immediate re- emotional response to this article. This, why do we murder the beautiful friendship of boys, inspired me to share it. And it might be one of the rare occasions, if I'm remembering back, it's been months ago, but 
where I've shared an article both on inappropriate conversations and Walk the Earth and my personal Facebook page all at the same time. I've been very careful over the six-plus years of this show to maintain some sort of professional distance, I guess I would call it, between what I do on the podcast and what I do in my personal life. It protects my family. It protects my coworkers and myself within the work environment. And in some ways, it makes an unhealthy divide between what I feel I'm being called to do spiritually and what I'm doing in these other aspects of my life. But this bullying that is referred to in these articles is real and it's true. And I fear that we as a nation are getting dangerously close to being the kind of country where you might be fired not just for being different in a uh, psychological or sexual way, but you might actually be, uh, we might be, if I lived in Mississippi right now, I would be desperately worried about the possibility that I might be fired for speaking out against a law. To be an ally might make you a target, not in most of the United States of America, but absolutely and without question in parts of states like Mississippi, Arizona, North Carolina, Texas, and Oklahoma. So I want to come to the end, to my emotional response to that article, in part because I'm a little bit embarrassed by where I stand. I am very close to what Green described in his article, somebody who could easily reach out and share a heartfelt word, or perhaps even, depending on the circumstances, a touch to those old friends in my life who mean the most to me. And I don't know why I don't. But first, this is not the first time in 2015 that Green has spoken in crucial and intelligent words about this issue. I was able, just by tracking through and looking some of his writings, to find other instances. There was one he published November 4th, 2013, called The Lack of Gentle Platonic Touch in Men's Lives is a Killer. These are Green's words at the start of the article. In preparing to write about the lack of gentle touch in men's lives, I right away thought, I feel confident I can do platonic touch, but I don't necessarily trust other men to do it. Some guy will do something creepy. They always do. Quickly on the heels of that thought, I wondered, wait a minute. Why do I distrust men in particular? The little voice in my head didn't say, I don't necessarily trust people to not be creepy. It said, I don't trust men. In American culture, we believe that men can never be entirely trusted in the realm of the physical. We collectively suspect that, given the opportunity, men will collapse into the sexual at a moment's notice. That men don't know how to, be, how to physically connect otherwise. That men can't control themselves. That men are dogs. There is no corresponding narrative about women. Accordingly, it has become every man's job to prove they can be trusted in each and every interaction day by day, and case by case. In part, because so many men have behaved poorly, and so we prove our trustworthiness by foregoing physical touch completely in any context in which even the slightest doubt about our interactions might arise, which sadly is pretty much every context we encounter. And where does this leave men? Physically and emotionally isolated, cut off from the deeply human physical contact that is proven to reduce stress encourage self-esteem, and create community. So these are his words a year and a half or so before. And in it, he presents this thesis. Boys are cast adrift with two unspoken lessons. One, all touch is sexually suspect. And two, find a girlfriend or give up human contact. A particularly damning message to boys who are gay. It explains, in my opinion, in this article, 
why even the people who have good intentions are sexualizing all touch from at least from a, the directions that we give to young men in our society. It's if, as if on the one hand, our homophobia drives men to not touch anyone unless their intentions are sexual because all touch is going to perceive, be perceived as potentially sexual, while at the same time decrying the fact that our society has become so sexualized. In some ways, many of the people who are the strongest opponents of the oversaturation of sexualization in our society reinforce it without even knowing that they're doing it. Picking up with Green again. We have seniors in retirement homes who are visited by dogs that they can hold and pet. This does wonders for their health and emotional state of mind. It is due to the power of contact between living creatures. Why are good-hearted people driving around town taking dogs to old folks' homes? Because no one is touching these elderly people. They should have grandchildren in their laps every day, or a warm human hand to hold, not Pomeranians who come out once a week. And yet, we put dogs in their laps instead. We, American men, have a tragic laundry list of reasons why we are not comfortable with touch. 1. We fear being labeled as sexually inappropriate by women. 2. We live in a virulently homophobic culture, so all contact between men is suspect. 3. We don't want to risk any hint of being sexual toward children. 4. We don't want to risk our status as macho or authoritative, by being physically gentle. And five, we don't ever want to deal with the rejection when we reach out, and in our touch-averse culture, that is the most likely outcome. This article makes reference to another previous article by Green, Touch Isolation, How Homophobia Has Robbed All Men of Touch. Homophobic prohibitions against male touch are hurting straight men as well, he wrote earlier that same year, I believe, in 2013. The part I want to highlight as interesting here is the reference he makes to an article from Brett and Kate McKay called Bosom Buddies, A Photo History of Male Affection, going back to some of the earliest photography in our country, and some of it even pre-1900, showing men holding hands, sitting in each other's laps, arms around each other, and not just in a sporting context. And we hear this all the time, right? If if a person scores an exciting and improbable game-winning goal at a soccer match, or a uh, last-minute buzzer beater in a basketball game that secures a national championship of some sort. It isn't long before that huddle of men, overjoyed by the sense of team accomplishment, hugging each other and patting each other on the back or patting each other on the ass, are not going to get some comment, often as not from women, not just men, that reeks of homophobia. Here's a quote from the article. Actually, it's a quote from the McKay's article. But at the turn of the 20th century... Thinking of men as either homosexual or heterosexual became common, and this new category of identity was at the same time pathologized, decried by psychiatrists as a mental illness, by ministers as a perversion, and by politicians as something to be legislated against. As this new concept of homosexuality as a stigmatized and onerous identifier took root in American culture, men began to be much more careful to not send messages to other men and to women that they were gay. And this is the reason why it is theorized men have become less comfortable showing affection toward each other over the last century. Green takes it in this direction, predictably. These days, put ten people in the room when two men touch a moment, quote-unquote, too long, and someone will make a mean joke, express distaste, or even pick a fight. And it's just as likely to be a woman as to be a man who enforces this homophobic, touch-averse stigma. 
The enforcement of touch prohibition between men can be as subtle as a raised eyebrow or as punitive as a fist fight, and you never know where it will come from or how quickly it will escalate. He quotes Charlie Glickman as saying uh, this in his article about the man box. As much as gay men have faced the brunt of homophobic violence, straight men have been banished to a desert of physical isolation by these same homophobic fanatics who police lesbians and gays in our society. Some of those homophobic fanatics who police lesbian and gays are doing so in the legislatures of places like Mississippi, North Carolina, and elsewhere. Finally, I'm not just naming Green a different drummer because he speaks to an issue that rings my bell, or because of the eloquence of his words, or the powerful uh, anecdote inside his storytelling. I'm naming him as a different drummer because maybe, maybe because of this particular call to action. To me, it's not enough as a blogger to simply call out a problem. I've been calling out problems for as long as I can remember, and I've only very recently began to get a little bit more confrontational when Christians ask me to dial it down a little bit, to quote-unquote, just be nice. My question back to them is, why aren't you standing up to the people who pervert the gospel, who forget that we're supposed to do unto others as we would have them do unto us? Here's the, the final word I'll give Mark Green as our different drummer. This has been a generation of American men who do not hug each other, do not hold hands, and cannot sit close together without the homophobic litmus test kicking in. The lack of touch in men's lives results in a higher likelihood of depression, alcoholism, mental and physical illness. Simply put, touch isolation is making men's lives less healthy and more lonely. And I would suggest that without knowing the hearts of everybody who is actively involved in the Good Men Project, I would suggest that this... This last sentence ties directly into the mission of that group. I'll be the first to admit that I am more likely to seek this kind of uh, affirmative touch from women than men. And I will be the first to acknowledge that Green's exactly right. For one of the reasons that I'm worried about it, he makes a comparison at the end of that article of gay men being more likely to be facing the brunt of physical violence and straight men being more likely to be facing a consequence of isolation and that both are problematic. But at least when you go back to junior high and high school, I don't know that that either or actually applies. I don't know that the, you couldn't produce a card that proved you were heterosexual and then guarantee that you would not be the focus or victim of direct physical violence from people who were homophobic and decided that you weren't just you just weren't straight enough or you were potentially gay. They didn't care. The truth of your sexual orientation was irrelevant, which is one of the reasons that it is so angering to me that any state would consider permitting, normalizing, or legally protecting discrimination against people. Because it's not something you can look at and be sure you're right, it's wrong on two levels. First, the discrimination is inherently wrong. But second, how likely is it that the people are going to be wrong about the discrimination that they perceive and act upon? It's double wrong. In fact, I made mention of this in denouncing the uh, worldview of Justice Antonin Scalia, who I refuse to be deferential and nod a hat to and find the nicest things I can say about him because you're not supposed to speak ill of the dead. The man made some serious mistakes. And his worldview, taken to its logical extreme, would be absolutely devastating and perhaps un-American in every way that we measure the uh, perhaps impossible-to-measure concept of what American 
really is. I spoke about this very early on in Inappropriate Conversations. The 43rd episode was recorded in January of 2011 uh, and was called The Content of Their Character. And despite the title, didn't deal exclusively with uh, the black experience in America and with equal rights for people of different races, I also took Scalia's notions, particularly with regarding laws like this, uh, their infancy, the infant version of them came from Colorado back in the day, and took them to their logical extreme and found them to be more than just devastating. They were actually absolutely mortifying. And it was hard to find any argument within Scalia's logic that wouldn't ultimately lead to the kind of concentration camps that Christian pastors in places like North Carolina and Arizona can be seen online screaming about. So when I look at why I'm more likely to have these kinds of close, intimate friendships, platonic friendships, but intimate friendships with women than men, I've got to ask myself if homophobia isn't a big piece of it. I choose to look more broadly than that and suggest that the psychology of Carl Jung provides a more meaningful explanation, uh, an explanation that is true the further up you go. So like from you know, 15 feet away, homophobia is perhaps the biggest factor, but from 20,000 feet up in the air, there are bigger psychological issues in play. Spoken about those in inappropriate conversations episodes like number 44 and number 80. I won't repeat myself here, except to say that with one more reference to a past show, Inappropriate Conversations, number 118, Where Would I Be Without God? I spoke specifically in that episode, actually quoting things that I had written previously online at simplysyndicated.com about two women and named them, one named Janet and one named Marcy. The heartbreak that Green expresses in his article about knowing he is never going to see somebody again, he's got the advantage of knowing that he's never going to see his friend George again because his friend George has died. Now, think about how weird it is for me to say that on an emotional and intellectual comfort level, it's advantageous that his friend George is dead. Because Green knows the door is shut, at least for the entirety of this lifetime, if you take a Christian perspective. And he knows that nothing's going to reopen that door. But I know that the door between me and Janet is every bit as shut. And I've known since the Holy Spirit told me in 1986 that that was true. And... I don't know if I'll ever see her again. I suspect not. I believe with a conviction that it won't make any difference if I do. So that's the negative side of the story. That somebody who's had that kind of a tremendous influence in my life, who I would consider to have made a godlike intervention, if by no other reason than letting me intervene. That's I'll let that story be told in the past inappropriate conversation that I believe dates back, again, it's in that 2013 era, uh, dating back in this case to April of that year. No, the one I want to talk about is Marcy. I did the unprecedented thing of sharing this one article by Green on both my own personal Facebook page and also Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. And there's different audiences there. And I've wrestled somewhat with how I've not managed these different audiences all that well, where in some cases I've got people who are followers of both podcasts. So they interact with me both on Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations. That's great. And some of those people are interacting with me now on my own personal page, but not all, and, and that's great too. But inside my own personal page, where pictures of the kids have been posted in the past, and trips and vacations and things of that nature, I've got different circles, and I've really wrestled with how those circles could or would or may never collide. People, uh, old friends from high school, uh, family members, extended family members, 
past coworkers, because I do sort of draw a line at current coworkers, not being interacting with my life this personally and in this way. Uh, also providing a little bit of protection to allow me to say things that I truly believe that might not fit comfortably within workplace conversations. But all the same, I just sort of chucked all those sort of rules and said, no matter what you think about any issue or anything, this article is important. It meant a lot to me. It's simply a must read. It's actually in some ways heartbreaking because I know that most of the crucial friendships in my life have been with women and, and not with men. And that I can't look back to the same kind of intense best friend kind of friendship from elementary school that Mark Green talks about in the anecdote that's the centerpiece of this article, Why Do We Murder the Beautiful Friendship of Boys? For me, it's been more about intersexual friendship. And I talk about that in this most recent blog post doing a book review, but not so much by name. And in this quick Facebook entry, sharing an article from the Good Men Project, I didn't call out anybody by name either. I just put it out there and sort of said, hey, this makes me miss some of the people that I've had this kind of connection with early in my life who probably don't even know it or who maybe don't even know it. And, you know, just put it out there. Marcy was one of the first people to like that post. Now, I don't want to give Facebook too much credit. A Facebook like, you know, you can't trade that on the stock exchange. It doesn't carry the kind of value that can be enumerated. And lots of times they're just worthless. Lots of times it's, it's a nod. It's an acknowledgement. But sometimes it means a lot more. And this was before the uh, period in time where you could turn that like into something like a thumbs up or a heart or a wow or a tear. I don't know the emotion behind the like, but I've chosen to interpret it in the most positive way. To me, it was Marcy saying, yeah, that's okay. You might be talking about me. And if you are, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. The situation with Zabu, too, with some guy just showing up on your doorstep because you talked to him and you were nice to him. I think, I think everybody fears that. Yes. Yeah. That's what Jen, that is Jenny's primary. <laughs> I will say it right now. Jen's primary fear is that someone is going to find her on the internet and then come to her door. Am I right? <laughs> I think that's Dave's biggest fear, too. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Maybe it's my fear because it's Dave's fear, and he, and he packs heat. <laughs> but see how she did that? She said that because she's afraid that somebody's going to come. <laughs> you noticed that, didn't you? Everyone knows. <laughs> I just like making fun, but it's true. <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. Inappropriate Conversations podcast can be found at uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org. The show is also available on iTunes, of course, other podcatchers, and uh, on Stitcher Smart Radio. I'm still intending to go back and finish the process of putting old clips, just hints of the content of past shows of Inappropriate Conversations on SoundCloud. I can be found there at IC underscore Greg, and likewise on Twitter, I'm at IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening.
Music by Kevin McLeod.